I think one of the reasons that I personally found the Song of Songs so incredibly illuminating and emotive is probably the best word, is because it, it takes us into a place, uh, particularly in our Western thinking, where gentleness and intimacy are just laid out in front of us. And, and I think certainly, I, I think I've probably reflected over what, I guess, 15 years of, or so of, of ministry. And there's lots of reasons, there's lots of times when we can speak about the, the power of knowing God, about the, um, for me, the intellectual robustness of knowing God, the idea that the more I dig into the, the way in which the Bible presents the message of the gospel, the more intellectually compelling it is. Can't get away from that. It's just layer upon layer of sense and observable reality. But the Song of Songs takes us into a whole other place of heart-moving, soul-rending emotion. And I think that there's many occasions when we hide that. We hide that in our relationship with God. We hide it actually in society. In lots of ways we might put what looks like intimacy and emotion at the forefront. But it's not deep soul stuff. And, and that's what I think this this book does. And it's such an antidote for the kind of idea that the, the Christian faith is either kind of, you know, soft in the sense of just we're all frothy all the time. This touches at the at emotion in the darkest of times. And that's a an incredibly powerful thing. And actually, in lots of ways, it makes the message of the Bible even more compelling. <laughs> because if it touches at the point where it is intellectually robust, if it touches at the point where it is exciting and joyful, but it also touches at the point of the most, the deepest of our emotions as well, then that's a powerful thing. But I think the other thing that it does is it encourages us to think about our relationship with the God who loves us as a God who loves our soul. And that we love that God in the same way. In fact, the Bible portrays it time and time and time again that the sole intimacy of our human experience is simply a reflection of the greater possibility of our sole intimacy with a God who loves us. And so for me, it's, it's a real joy to be able to look at this particular section in chapter 3 and verse 1 to 5. I've called it comfort in the darkness. 
Uh, and hopefully, as we work through this section, we can see why it's so relevant for us today. <clears throat> it's probably one of the most iconic photographs in all of rock and roll history. Some of you will know it instantly. Some of you might want to go and look at it afterwards. I'll give you a, I'll give you a, 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 a word picture of the photograph that Annie Leibovitz took in 1980 of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I don't know whether she was influenced by, some of you will know, uh, Klimt's painting The Kiss with a kind of an intimacy between two. But this, paint, this photograph of John and Yoko is, it, it's really incredibly powerful. Yoko is lying clothed on her back, and John, this kind of rock and roll superpower, is naked but not sexually, and is curled up in a fetal position, holding on to her. Incredibly powerful picture. It turns around all of those expectations and, and points for a moment to the reality of every man's heart that for all of that bluff and bravado and front, we want to be deeply loved. And it's incredibly powerful. It's an intimate, relational, captured moment. Yoko is nurturing. It turns the world around and points to a kind of uninhibited, unconditional giving. But that, I don't think, is the only reason that that photograph is so incredibly powerful. And it's powerful for this reason. That five hours later, five hours later, there was another shot taken by Mark David Chapman that ended the life of John Lennon. Isn't that incredible? I think what makes, for me, that picture so incredibly powerfully poignant is the moment of intimacy points to the fact that that moment would never be experienced again by Yoko. Five hours later, John was dead. And, and as I even... It wasn't that good. <laughs> as I think about it, as I think about that kind of juxtaposition of sheer beauty in relationship, and yet the crashing imposition of death, I don't know about you, but it makes my heart yearn for a love like that which will never end. Because that's the power of that image by Annie Leibovitz. It's powerful because of what it says, but it also speaks about what ends. It's not always there. And in a way, this little reading that we're going to look at in the first section, I guess it speaks about what Yoko Ono would have experienced for years later. Verse 1, all night long on my bed, 
I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. Wow. How often human experience is wrapped up in those words in so many ways. In so many, from so many different angles, we look at that sentence and we say, I know what you mean. We know through loss, but there's something else that this little section is saying, and I think it's this. That there is something about the loneliness of the darkness that has an overwhelming power to isolate us. Something about darkness that isolates us. It, it speaks so powerfully that you are on your own. The darkness does that. One of humanity's most emotive experiences is those fears of the dark. Or those fears in the dark. Which are compounded by being alone in the dark. In fact, if you haven't experienced this, you are either going to experience it at some point in your life, or you are one of the most blessed people I have ever encountered. And it's this. That any problem is ten times worse in the dark of the night. Isn't it? I, I, I still have that. Continually. Wake up in the night with some issue going round in my head. And it's so overwhelming in my thinking. Trying to, oh, This is so big. Wake up in the morning... And it's not the porridge that makes it small, it's the light. <laughs> it's the fact that I'm not alone with that problem. And that's the way the Song of Songs is written. It's written in a way to grab a hold of us and to, to plant us firmly in the mind and experience of the woman. And say, remember what this is like, you know what this is like. I looked for him, but did not find him. It's, it's one of the most repeated ideas. Continue. If you are old enough, I'm just going to read these lyrics out. It's going to be a, there's going to be a kind of group of people at a certain age who will know it straight away. Lying in my bed, I hear the clock tick and think of you. Caught up in circles. Confusion is nothing new. Flashback warm nights. Almost left behind. Suitcase of memories. Time after time. There is a sense in which that loneliness is just repeated and repeated and repeated. It is one of the most repeated mantras of our literary and artistic expression. Loneliness and desperately wanting to be reconnected with the one that we love. I think the power of this particular section of Song of Songs, and then we've got to, <coughs> excuse me, grabbed a glass of water and put the hot tap on. That was not a good idea. Um, one of the things about the Song of Songs is it's kind of, it's constantly flowing in two ways. It's got the idea of 
sexual intimacy and it's got the idea of relational intimacy. They're kind of interweaved continually. There's a kind of hint about the loneliness of the bed, but I think it's deeper than just the loneliness of the bed. I think there's what we've just described of that relational intimacy is what is desperately in the woman's heart. I think the, the images and the power of these thoughts go beyond sexuality. In fact, it's an idea that the Bible repeats again and again. Listen to this, this a psalm by David, Psalm 22. Uh, sorry, Psalm 63, verse 6 to 8. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Why do I do that? Why, why is David saying I do that? Why do I think of you through the watches of the night? Precisely because he is expressing that, that soul emptiness, that, that fear of, of the issue in the dark. But what is his response? Because why does he think of God in those moments? Because you are my help. That's why I go there. I want to encourage you as I speak continually to myself in the darkness of those fearful nights think of the God who loves you. That's where your heart is going to be most secured. That's where your fears are going to be most relieved. Why? Why is that? Because God is always, always bigger than any issue. There is no issue that is greater than the power of the God who created the universe as we sang at the beginning. I sing in the, sh I sing in the shadow of your wing. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. There is another way in which I think a deep sense of God and the darkness of the night can also be a great challenge to us. The darkness of the night is very often the times when we are most, most powerfully confronted with our own sin and unworthiness. That sense of guilt, that sense of responsibility, that sense of failure, that sense of unworthiness, that sense of the reality of who I am as a human being. Or maybe most poignant in our thinking in the dark. In exactly the same way as David reflects on that, I want us to encourage ourselves that when our sin overwhelms us, when the accusations are most strong in the darkness, this verse says that He is my most intimate protector. He is the one that I can turn to in the darkness, in my shame, in my guilt, and know that He will receive me and hold me. I want to take us back to that picture of John and Yoko. And there is a kind of a, 
there is a kind of, in, in the nakedness of John, there is a kind of naive, childlike purity. I think that's the way it's, the way it's kind of conjured up. And I think it's deliberate with the kind of fetal position. There is a, there is a, a reason why Yoko would put her arms around him and embrace him. But here's the reality of our experience, is that our experience knows that we are no pure, innocent, childlike being. We are sinful and unworthy and unacceptable. We know it ourselves. The darkness reminds us so often. And yet, there is that work of God in our hearts which causes us to do just what the woman does in verse 2. I'll get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. <laughs> uh, if you want to know anything of that experience of not finding him, go home and read Psalm 88. It's one of the most powerful psalms in the whole of the book of Psalms for me. Because most psalms have a turning point. A kind of a triumphal turning point where, we, where God responds to the psalmist or the psalmist responds to God in joy. But Psalm 88 never sees that. It is grim and hopeless to the end. But the grim and hopelessness to the end is exactly this. It's exactly the searching and not finding. The woman is showing her love for her lover even in his absence. Even when she can't find him in the streets. The love is expressed by the woman who tramps the streets in the dark not finding him. That's how our love for God is expressed in the darkest of times precisely because we keep on searching when we feel as if we're not finding. And I love that God's Word reflects just that. It reflects the fact that there can be times in our life when we feel like we're just searching for God and there's this darkness and coldness from heaven and it seems like He's so far away and I am getting no comfort. Your love is expressed in the fact that you are searching. And even more than that, God's love is expressed towards you because He's worked by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you will even bother to search. Because you'll have no reason in our human condition to search for God unless He's put that in you anyway. So search and believe that when you are searching, it is only because God is working out His love for you. Why does the woman search for her lover? Because she already knows that her lover loves her heart, loves her soul. She knows what the lover is like. The lover has already, if you like, revealed his true character and nature to her and therefore she desperately wants him. If you are coming to terms with the Christian faith, maybe for the first time, 
what this, what this particular section says is that the God who we worship is a God who places in our hearts a desire for Him but takes the time to really show us who He is. So she searches, or she is alone in the darkness. The second thing we see is that she's searching for the one. Verse 3 and 4. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? It's kind of... The reason that I think this section, this little verse is there is because it's, it's almost pointing to a moment of jeopardy, actually. It's a moment of jeopardy. She's a woman alone in the dark in the city. And she's approaching the watchman. There is a there's a jeopardy moment. How are they going to behave? She's seeking the one, but she, but she is at the same time so desperate to find the one that her desire for finding him is greater than the jeopardy of approaching the watchman. And then it, it kind of explodes with joy straight after. Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. I think that last little section is almost saying that what the woman is doing is bringing her lover into the most intimate, familial experience. The very heart of where her heart is. I'm bringing you to the closest part of me. The most intimate part of me. The part really that nobody else knows. The part where my identity is. My identity is in the place where my mother conceived me. And I'll bring you into the most intimate part of my very being. But there's something here that we see, I think. And it's this. <clears throat> there is a search. She's desperately searching for that intimate love. And I think we've said this so many times in Christchurch. Our human experience is searching. We're all searching for something. We're all searching for, from the Rolling Stones to you too. We're searching for satisfaction and we still haven't found what we're looking for. There is this constant, unsettled desire and need. It's our human experience. We're surrounded and we are participants in the human search for existence, meaning. But I want to suggest that underneath that is we are all desperately searching to be nurtured and loved. 
We all desperately want to be held. You know, one of the most amazing things I see in that is the idea that God presents Himself as a nurturing mother. We often think about God as the the lion of the tribe of Judah, a warrior, all of that kind of thing. But possibly one of the most powerful images is in Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I will nurture you. I will hold you. You know, there's a search. (laughs) There's a search by a baby from the very first moment of birth or within moments of birth. And it's the search for nurture and it's the search for food. A baby doesn't know where it's going to be fed from. But it very, very quickly finds out. And once it knows every time a mother takes a hold of the baby who is hungry, there is an instant response to be nurtured, held, and fed. And God says to us, who want to be really kind of strong and independent and all of that kind of thing, he says, when you search, you will start searching without knowing where to look. But when you find what you know you need, I will never cease to hold you, to nurture you, and to feed you. I will never let go of you. I will hold you. And I will care for you. And again, when we think of a grown man wrapped up in a fetal position against another woman who is nurturing him, it points in a moment to me that that is the reality of our human experience. We want to be held And we search all over the place. And then, (laughs) then we find the source of satisfaction and food. And we know that it will never let us down. In the darkness, if if you have ever sensed those first drops of food from the nurturing God who holds you, then continue to go there. And if you have never experienced the nurturing source of food of the God who loves you, can I simply point you in that direction and say that is what you are really deep down looking for, I believe. Third thing we see is this, in verse (coughs) 5. I've called this waiting for the one. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, 
by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. I think the does and gazelles of the field is just its kind of a poetic. There are all sorts of layers and all sorts of interpretations. I think it's a poetic way of seeing innocence and gentleness. But the most powerful message is this. Don't arouse or awaken love until, until <coughs> excuse me, it so desires. We could put, it this, put this another way. The woman is saying to the other younger women around her, the depth and power of the intimate desire and satisfying love of the one who truly loves you who loves your soul is the very reason for you to not hold on to anything else. Not be side barred, not be diverted, not be taken away, not be satisfied with the, the less until you know the one who truly loves you. You know, I'm fascinated really fascinated that I think I see don't know whether it'll come true or not I hope it does beginning to see maybe the first shoots of possibility that the next generation are kicking away the idea of uh, or shunning the idea of instant gratification I don't know I hope so But there's a kind of push away for all the things that have excited us for the past 20 or 30 years, 20 odd years. Who would ever have, who would ever have thought that analog telephones would start to come back? I mean, wow. Who would ever have thought that film cameras would come back? read a little article which somebody said this, the reason I like this Kodak Ektar H35 is because I don't know if I've got a picture and I have to wait. <laughs> what? That's amazing. It's, there's a kind of an excitement to the idea that I'm going to put this film and be developed and then it'll come back and it'll <laughs> you'll get the shot with the nose at that level kind of thing. But what this verse is saying is just that. Don't allow our hearts to be captured by the instant gratification of something that is less. Because our world is filled. It is filled with lovers who promise all sorts of things, and yet they are so less than the one who really loves us. And yet what do we do? We prostitute ourselves with every passing little love that seems as if it's going to be so amazing, so satisfying, and yet it doesn't last what this verse says. It says, look, wait for the one who loves you. 
back to John and Yoko. The tragedy of that picture, and the reason it is so powerfully poignant, I think, is because of five hours later. Because five hours later, the intimacy is broken by death. I think the psalmist in Psalm 22, David, kind of experiences this. He experiences the separation in a way. He says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, for I find no rest. That's what David said in Psalm 22. He says, I feel as though I am reaching out for you, God. In the day, in the night, on my bed, alone, I'm crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we know? How do we know that God will not forsake us? Well, here's the incredible paradox and the reason why for me the Christian faith is so intellectually satisfying is because those very words are the words that Jesus cries out when he is separated from God the Father when he dies on a cross. Mark chapter 15. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How is it? How is it that the beautiful, righteous, glorious God will embrace and nurture a filthy, unrighteous, human being when we slide up to him and hope that he will hold us. Why would God do that? Because God was separated from God by death. The complete paradoxical opposite of what John and Yoko speak to us about at the point where Yoko will never experience the nurture of the John and Yoko moment again because death breaks in, is the very picture that says the reason that God can hold on to us and nurture us and actually consider us as clean and righteous and good and pure and innocent as that fetal positioned naked human being is because Jesus died. And he died filthy. And he died sin-bound. And he died unworthy. And he died unrighteous. And you say, why do you love me? Why would you love me? Because you love what your son did. So that I can be loved. It's the most beautiful, most incredible story of love that we can ever see in our human experience. He loved me because of what his son, he loves me because of what his son did. 
and he proved that it is effective because he defeated the very death that held him there. The nakedness of John reminds me that in my natural state, my nakedness is so shameful that I can never be embraced by the purity of God. And yet the nakedness of John also reminds me that he was willing to bear my shame He was willing to become naked for me. He was willing to be stripped for me. So that by the power of His Holy Spirit, I can embrace and be embraced by the lover of my soul. I pray that we would all know that love.